We're inundated with fear-filled statements of climate collapse. Young people have been told that the rest of us have all doomed their future for our profit. We must stop all carbon emissions to conform to a net zero policy. And then I remember high school science and people exhale CO2. That's what we breathe out. Do they know this? Or is that the real agenda, reducing the population? As an economic issue, we're told we must eliminate fossil fuels, as if oil, gas, and coal are fossils from dead dinosaurs. We've invited a special guest into the economic war room, uh, Dr. Calvin Beisner, founder, president, and national spokesperson of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. It's a network of Christian theologians, natural scientists, economists, and other scholars educating for biblical earth stewardship, economic development for the poor, and the proclamation and defense of the gospel. He's written over 15 books, edited over 30, contributed to over 35, and published thousands of articles, popular and scholarly. He's lectured at universities, seminaries, conferences, and churches in North America, Europe, Africa, and Asia. He's testified as an expert witness on the ethics and economics of climate change and climate and energy policy before committees of the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives. Dr. Beisner, welcome to the Economic War Room. Thank you very much. Hey, we're going to use a bad, good, beautiful approach. Uh, we're going to start with bad and, and from the media's viewpoint, and then we'll go to good and we'll go to beautiful. We do the opposite of Clint Eastwood. He does the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We do the bad, the good, and the beautiful. So let's start with the bad. You're, you've studied um, climate change. You've studied stewardship of the earth. Uh, from the media's view, following the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, what do they say is going wrong with the planet? What's their view? Boy, it's great that you started off by saying from the media's view, because it's really important to distinguish between what the IPCC itself says and what the media say about the IPCC. Uh, the, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change under the United Nations Actually, if you look at their scientific assessment reports, there's an awful lot of really good science in there. You'll never find terms like crisis, existential threat, catastrophe, emergency. They're just not in there, you know, unless they happen to be in the title of one of the references cited in, in one chapter or something. But the IPCC doesn't use that language and doesn't put out information that supports that language. That's very, very clear. That's mainstream science. Now, I have my disagreements. I think the IPCC uh, tends to think that global warming is going to be more than it actually is likely to be, but that's a quibble, right? Where we get into the existential threat and crisis and emergency and language, that all comes not from the IPCC, but from the politicians who are with the UN and do the press conferences when they release the reports, particularly the summaries for policymakers, which are not by the scientists, they're by the government agencies, uh, and then from the media. They're the ones who tell us, for instance, the way UN Secretary of General uh, Guterres put it, this is code red for humanity. You won't find that anywhere in the reports. So, but what the media are telling us is that we are facing devastation of the planet. We're, we're facing something that actually has some people afraid that human beings are going to go extinct by the middle of the century. Uh, or as AOC once put it, you know, we only have 12 years to solve this problem or we're all dead. I mean, this is, this is craziness. There is no scientific basis for statements like that. And 
And unfortunately, too many politicians get their so-called science not from the scientific reports, but at best from the summaries for policymakers, more likely just from journalists' total misrepresentation of this stuff. Well, we've got young people like Greta just running around um, the world and saying, you've doomed our future. We're all going to die. And if you, you're, you're guilty, you're a murderer, and, and pointing things out like that, right? People are, young yeah. people are terrified of uh, global warming. Yeah, they sure are. And it's, it's really sad because it is probably the least of all significant threats to us. You know, poverty is a far greater threat to human health and longevity than anything related to climate. If you have income comparable to, say, the bottom tenth of Americans, you can thrive in any climate from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara Desert to the Brazilian rainforest. If you're trying to live on the equivalent of about $2 a day, you can't thrive in the best tropical paradise. That's, that's the result of poverty. And so if we overcome poverty, we can deal with whatever climate might bring to us in the future. The problem is that the policies being pushed to fight global warming are all policies that slow, stop, or reverse the conquest of poverty. That makes people more vulnerable, not less vulnerable, to climate problems. You know, we have reduced the rate of human mortality from natural disasters, climate disasters, weather disasters, by more than 98% over the last 100 years. And that's during the very time when supposedly we've got this devastating global warming going on. Well, that's craziness. We see that wealth enables people to protect themselves. Our concern should be far more about generating that wealth, lifting the other roughly five and a half billion human beings who have not yet come out of poverty out of it so that they can join the rest of us. Well, and that makes sense to me. I mean, if, if actual climate mortality is decreasing as wealth is increased despite CO2 in the atmosphere. But here's something I found. I found this uh, in a PowerPoint you sent to me. Uh, Maurice Strong, Secretary General of the UN Conference on the Human Environment, first Executive Director of the UN Environment Program, Foundation Director of the World Economic Forum, discussing in 1992 and he said, what if a small group of world leaders were to conclude that the principal risk to the earth comes from the action of rich countries? And what if the world is to survive, those rich countries would have to sign an agreement reducing their impact on the environment. Will they do it? The group's conclusion is no. The rich countries won't do it. They won't change. So in order to save the planet, the group decides isn't the only hope for the planet that the industrialized civilizations collapse isn't it our responsibility to bring that about? This group of world leaders form a secret society to bring about an economic collapse. Is that a true quote? Absolutely, that is a true quote. And frankly, that is the attitude of all too much of the environmentalist movement around the world. They tend to be anti-human, pro-nature, rather than recognizing that God made human beings to, to have dominion over nature in order to enhance its fruitfulness, its beauty, and its safety to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. Wow. Well, we're going to have to take a break. When we come back, let's delve into the facts. We've talked about what the messaging has been. Let's take a hard look at what the facts really are.
Dr. Beisner, I've talked to a number of uh, climate experts and, and you know, terrific people like Mark Morano and David Legates and others that, that, that have pointed out some of the nonsense. But you start from a little bit different perspective, and I really love it. You start with a view of stewardship. Certainly you understand science. Certainly you understand the facts and, and all of the details. But your purpose and motivation is a little bit different. You're here to be a good steward of the planet for God Almighty. Can you explain how that brought yeah. you into this? Yeah, well, you know, as a, as a Christian believer, I take Scripture seriously. Scripture tells me that God created humankind, male and female, in his image, and he blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that moves on the face of the earth. This is a, a Hebrew sort of a poetic structure there uh, where this shows everything, okay? Human beings are supposed to have dominion over everything. Now, back in 1967, uh, a, uh, an environmentalist uh, who was actually also a medieval historian, uh, Lynn White, published an essay in Science Magazine in which he blamed Judeo-Christian worldview for ecological devastation. Mm. And that got reprinted in dozens and dozens of anthologies in environmental science used all over the world. And he claimed that it's because of this verse, that this verse uh, Christians and Jews interpreted as giving them total license to just abuse nature any way they wanted. Now, of course, you can go back through the whole history of pre-Christian rabbinic interpretation and post-Christ Christian uh, interpretation of Genesis 1.28, you never find that. It's a complete caricature, right? But what we did at the Cornwall Alliance was we tried to figure out, okay, so what should this dominion look like? Granted that we're made in God's image, what did God's dominion look like? Well, he started with nothing and he got everything. <laughs> he brought light out of darkness, life out of non-life, order out of chaos, greater order out of lesser order, great variety of life. That's what our dominion should look like. We can't bring anything out of nothing, but we can jolly well bring more and more out of less and less. And as we do that, we reflect God better and better. So we came to sort of summarize the idea of dominion as enhancing the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and to the benefit of our neighbors so that we're fulfilling the two great commandments to love God and to love neighbor. That's what we're supposed to do. And God has given us the minds and the hands to be able to do that. And that explains, by the way, theologically, why we're not running out of resources. Even at the same time that we're growing in population, we're not running out of resources. Resources are less scarce now than they were a couple hundred years ago because people make resources. As the late Julian Simon, Simon put it, the ultimate resource is the human mind made in God's image connected to our hands, we make more and more out of less and less. And that's why the long-term inflation-adjusted cost of resources is downward, not upward. They're, they're less scarce, not more, over time. Well, and the notion of stewardship is that it doesn't belong to us, but we're responsible for it. Right. And that is a statement that we have to take care of our planet. It, it would be ir irresponsible to purposely destroy the environment. But yes. helping people out of poverty is not destroying the environment. It, it is actually using the resources God's given us. That's right. You know, in the parable of the talents, you have uh, the, the master 
giving to one servant five talents, to another two, to another one, and then the servants come back and they're to give account, of, give you know, to give an account for what they've done with these talents that they've been given, and one of them comes back and says, "Master, I knew that you were a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow." And so I just buried my talent in the ground. You know, the master condemned him. We're told him and told that he was to be cast out into outer darkness. And that's God's judgment on those who refuse to multiply the, the resources that God has entrusted to us. I, I think about the leave it in the ground movement associated with Bill McKibben and, and uh, you know, 350.org, which insists we have to get back to 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. They want to leave it in the ground, all the fossil fuels. That's exactly the thinking of that servant. That servant was the wrong one. The two who multiplied the master's investment in them. They're the ones who were said who were told, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a little, you'll now you'll you'll be given rulership over much. Now I think it's really important that the statistics, the data bears up your perspective. Uh, you know, one of the arguments that someone could make is they could say, well, you are, aren't you just like one of those doctors uh, in the 50s that told us that smoking cigarettes was good for you and that they were paid off by the tobacco companies? Uh, you're actually making a case, and it's coming out in your new book that's coming up, where you make the case statistically that the environment may be better off than it was, that people's longevity is better off the, than it was, that, that actually this dominion and taking and using the resources God's given us has actually benefited not just the planet, but benefited human Absolutely. beings as well. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm still waiting for a check from ExxonMobil or some other big oil or gas or coal company. Uh, it's not coming. We're supported by just ordinary individuals. You know, the Cornwall Alliance is a nonprofit and, and people give money and praise the Lord for that. Uh, we operate on a shoestring. But God has blessed us with a bunch of volunteer scholars who have contributed so much to what we've done. And what we're trying to do is to get people to understand that a biblical understanding of the creation itself and its creator and of mankind made in the image of, of the creator leads to a totally different attitude from what dominates most of the environmental movement. Most of that is rooted in either a secular humanist, atheist, materialist worldview, or an Eastern pantheist sort of a worldview. Either way, it fails to distinguish the creator from the creature. And as Paul warns in Romans 1, when you fail to acknowledge the creator-creature distinction, you begin to worship the creation instead of the creator, and then you're given over to a reprobate mind, professing to be wise, you become a fool. And that's what we see in, unfortunately, so much of the environmentalist movement. Well, when we, we're going to need to take another break. When we come back, though, I want to dive into this. The difference in average temperature if we do everything they say versus uh, what it would be if we just are good stewards. The difference in the economy if we do everything they say versus if we're just acting as good stewards. What it would cost to go to net zero. Uh, can renewables replace carbon-based energy? Uh, sort of a cost-benefit analysis of what if we follow their path or if we're just simply acting as good biblical stewards. Let's take a break and we'll come back and address those questions.
Dr. Weissner, let's play a quick game. With carbon, without carbon, all right? So with carbon or without carbon, what's the difference in the average temperature? <laughs> well, not enough to shake a stick at, really. I mean, uh, it's most likely that if we, when we reach a doubling of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere compared with before the Industrial Revolution, we'll have raised global average temperature by something on the order of two degrees Celsius. That's actually good because we're coming out of a little ice age. It was really, really tough. Cold kills about 20 times as many people per day as heat, heat waves do. Uh, but that's that's good. For the second doubling, we'd have to go from 560 parts per million to 1120 parts per million. It would take probably a good thousand years to do that. And it would have no more influence on temperature than the first doubling did, because CO2's influence on temperature is what's called logarithmic. Uh, there are technical reasons for why that's so, but we probably don't have time to go into those. Well, the whole notion is we're talking about a difference from uh, pre-industrial age to, to where we're headed. Two degrees, is that what you just said, basically? Yeah, uh, right, about two degrees Celsius, which, by the way, is a, a small fraction of the typical difference between nighttime low and daytime high in most places, and a much, much smaller fraction of the difference between uh, summer high and winter low in most locations around the world. We deal with temperature changes like that all the time. Global average temperature is, in many ways, a, a, a nonsense, an inconsequential uh, factoid because nobody experiences global average temperature. The temperature that's important is where you are. Oh. And, and that goes up and down by far greater amounts than two or three degrees Celsius. Okay, so uh, we've, we've barely moved the temperature, if, if at all. It's hard to measure and hard to know, but, it, but it's not consequential. But now I'm looking at two charts that you put out, global fossil fuel consumption and life expectancy. Uh, how are those correlated? <laughs> Almost perfectly. <laughs> the more we use fossil fuels, the higher human life expectancy is. And the reason for that is that fossil fuels provide at this point, roughly 85% of all the energy that human beings consume every year. Now, energy, you remember from your early science education in middle school, energy is the capacity to do work. Well, work is important to everything that we consume, food, clothing, shelter, everything else. The more work you can get done, the more of all those things you can have. All of those things contribute to human health and to human long life. So. Where we get our energy from is critically important, and fossil fuels are such a great source because they're very, very high density at point of origin. So you don't have to do as much refining and whatnot in order to get them to the kind of density that's really useful for work. They're thousands of times denser than wind and solar, which is why the idea that we're going to replace those with wind and solar is basically an idea that's going to, that means Oh yeah, we're going to push people back into poverty. You know, I saw, I heard an example of how we can solve two problems at once. Uh, a suggestion is, why don't we put solar all along the border? And if we put all solar all along the border, and I think it was like a mile thick, uh, we might get enough energy to power to replace uh, coal, oil, and natural gas in the electric supply, and, and then it would be impossible. To, but what a waste of land, and what a use of resources. You've got another graphic that I think is incredible. It would take 
to Californias. Explain that. Yeah. Uh, in order to provide all the electricity that the United States currently uses every year, that doesn't mean that we've added electric vehicles all over the place, just what we currently use, we would have to cover a total amount of land equivalent to twice the land of the state of California with wind turbines. Well, and vast amounts of money. You can't build all those wind farms, yeah. vast amounts of resources. You would be involving slave labor in China. You would be uh, digging up and harming the Which environment in so many areas. Yes. So here is cost-benefit analysis. I look at the Paris Climate Agreement. It, it, the cost of one to two trillion dollars per year from 2030 to 2100 would be 70 to 140 trillion dollars. And yet you've stated here it would have virtually no significant effect on human welfare or other ecosystem, except we would have $140 trillion less that we could spend to help people around the yeah. planet. Yeah, and the impact on global average temperature, by the way, by 2100, of spending 70 to $140 trillion to try to reduce it would be, eh, we might bring temperature down by three-tenths of a degree Fahrenheit. All it does is chew up all those trillions of dollars. Okay, now let's jump to another study, separate study, I understand, mm -hmm. but another study basically said that, uh, that if you reduce the temperature by a certain amount, that you will benefit the gross world per capita, um, mm -hmm. gross world product per capita. And I think the number here was like $3,200. So it doesn't seem yep. to me that you're going to be benefiting very much from all this and it's gonna be costing us a fortune. Yeah, essentially what can be calculated from the IPCC's own data and theory is that you know, in, in 2022, we had GD, GWP per capita uh, worldwide of about $14,000. Assuming 3.1% uh, uh, annual GD, GWP growth, which has been normal for about the last century, uh, that would rise to $124,000 and 2100. Now, the IPCC estimates in a 2018 report that if we didn't do anything to try to fight climate change, that climate change would take about 2.6% off of that, reducing us from $124,000 per capita to $121,000 per capita. Now, <laughs> do you really think that a 2.6% reduction, taking us from almost nine times our current GDP per capita to a little over eight times our current GDP per capita, do you think that's worth it? I don't. Uh, doesn't surprise me that the author of The Art of the Deal thought the Paris Climate Agreement was not a good idea. No, it's not a good idea. Thank you so much for taking time with us today. Hey, you can learn more uh, about uh, Dr. Beisner, and he's got a new book, Climate and Energy, The Case for Realism, that's edited by, both by he and our former guest, uh, David Legates. It's scheduled for release in late 2023, and you can learn more at the Cornwell Alliance at www.cornwellalliance.org. Look, we are in the economic war room, and we're fighting an economic battle, and climate change is clearly one of those economic battle things. We're gonna take all of this that we've done, summarize it, and put it in our free economic battle plan. You can get a copy at economicwarroom.com. Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room.